elsewhere. This is Ian Ditchburn. Took a little bit of time getting this one out of the shop, but we did it. Episode 10 is on the books. Double digits. We made it. No one said we couldn't make it, but we made it anyway, and I couldn't be happier. This episode is with author and mountaineer Rob Wood. He's also an architect and has designed and lived in his own off-grid property for the past 40 years. Now, that's a sort of style of living that's been gaining a lot of traction recently, sort of a second wave of the back-to-land movement. If you can even call it a second wave, I think ever since there's been cities, there's been people cramped into uncomfortable quarters and... I think there's always been a certain segment of the population that has longed for the immersion in nature that Rob and his wife Lori uh, felt themselves and sought out and turned into something really beautiful. We had a hell of a time getting up there. Those who follow me on social media will know that winter storms canceled pretty much every ferry to Nanaimo that we were trying to catch. So we ended up sailing to Victoria, then driving up island through the storm barely making it in time for our ferry to Quadra the next morning. In order to make it to Morel Island, where Rob and Lori live, you have to make it to the dock on the north end of Quadra by a certain time of day and hope the tides and the weather is with you. Luckily, they were, and we had a beautiful crossing over the Surge Narrows. And yeah, they couldn't have picked a better spot to spend the last 45 years. One final note about Rob He is the subject of an upcoming documentary called The Zone. It focuses on something very unique about Rob, which is the way that he's handled a recent Parkinson's diagnosis. Essentially, through his mountaineering and through spending so much time embedded in nature, Rob has cultivated a mental state, which he calls The Zone, which allows him to stave off most of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And I can personally attest to having seen exactly that. He's four years in, which, relatively speaking, is pretty late-term Parkinson's, and he doesn't shake whatsoever. His voice is, as you'll hear, fairly steady, and, yeah, is just a real testament to the, the power of mind over circumstance. I'm going to play you in today with a song that Rob played for us right when we were having breakfast that morning. I told him that we usually play a little bit of music on our show, and he immediately knew which album and which song he wanted to play. So this is Teach Your Children by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Hope you enjoy it. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well, their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams the one they picked the one you know by 
Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they love you And you Of tender years Can't know the fears That your elders and so please help them with your youth. They seek the truth before they can die. Teach your parents well. Their children's hell will slowly go by. Them on your dreams, the one they picked, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why, if they told you you would cry, so just look at them and sigh. just after 9.30 a.m. here on Morel Island. I'm sitting here with architect and mountaineer Rob Wood. Rob, you're a mountaineer, an author, a sailor, an architect. Obviously, there's a lot going on there. So to see how someone like you happens, I figured the best way would be to start at the beginning. What can you tell me about how you grew up? Well, I grew up in a uh, small village in Yorkshire, north of England, right on the edge of the York Moors National Park. So I was really lucky. It was, uh, um, it was a time when the milk was still delivered by horse and cart, and we can remember. I can remember the first motor car showing up in our village, and the village life was very much as it has been for probably hundreds of years. I had the opportunity to be free-range kids. We'd go out in the fields and the moors, and for long periods of time, my parents didn't even know where we were, and we were out rambling in the wild country, relatively wild country. England standards, it was wild. Yeah. How were you in school? Well, I, I did all right at school, but um, I, I ended up going the whole route through and graduating and going to university. But uh, I didn't enjoy school at all. No. Except playing rugby. Playing rugby was the only part of it that I, I had any real satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you get involved in climbing then? Well, my dad had done some climbing, and he had a, a climbing rope hanging in the garage, and it, he had taken us out on holidays. We went to the mountains, and uh, and mainly hiking, but he had also done some rock climbing. And so he'd showed us places where people rock climbed, including uh, a local place close where we lived in, in the city of Leeds when I was a teenager. And uh, I was so bored one day in French class, and I was just gazing out of the window, and I had a flash of inspiration and I wrote a note to a couple of guys across the classroom that they were Boy Scouts and they were into using ropes and tying knots and stuff like that, going camping. 
So I thought they may be interested in going climbing. So I wrote a note across the classroom. Should we go climbing this weekend out at Armscliff Crag? And we could, I've got a rope we could take and we could get out there on our bikes. And the answer said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. That was the start of it. Mm-hmm. So you, but by rope, you mean you just literally had a rope? Or did you have any actual equipment at that point? Nothing except the rope. Yeah. What did your family think of this hobby? Well... The old man uh, approved of it, and mother was um, very, very, very uh, you know, cautious, but um, she didn't stop it. Mm-hmm. She knew we were having fun. And like you said, you were free-range children, yeah. so that was nothing new. So as, as you grew up climbing, um, our mutual friend Anne, who hooked us up, told me a story about how you were all squatting in some house in the Scottish Highlands, uh, in the Scottish Highlands, um, that's the place that you were ice climbing, which makes you sound like kind of extreme sports punks. Um, so what I'm wondering is what types of people were in this community as you kind of grew into it? Well, climbing in my time uh, was somewhat of an adversive activity. It was anti-establishment. We knew that we were doing something that could not be explained by ordinary established ways of thinking. People thought that climbers were crazy. And, um, Were you crazy? Well, well, <laughs> it depends how you look at it. I had the sneaky suspicion pretty early on that it wasn't the climbers that were crazy, it was society that was crazy and the climbers were sane. And 70, 50 years later, I'm returning to that theme and I still still believe that what we're doing is sensible and what was happening in society didn't make any sense at all. What kind of things in society? Well, I could see, certainly by the time I started architecture school, that uh, there was something fundamentally wrong with with, uh, with modern society and that it was people were getting increasingly separated from each other and from their environment and there's something fundamentally wrong. And so being trained as an architect, I was the, part of the curriculum of an architect's training is to leadership, you know, society, you know, leading society and advocating for what is best for the common good. And I was quite sure that what was best for the common good was to slow down and consume less stuff and not pollute as much and have more time for each other and uh, enjoy, enjoy life more, which is exactly what I was experiencing at the weekends and holidays and climbing. Climbing was giving me something that was exactly what I thought society was missing. And th- those two things were increasingly opposed to each other. And that set me up for my whole life as a sort of intellectual quest to to resolve that opposition. Yeah, I think that's even more magnified in today's world where people are increasingly sucked into digital technology and not, you know, looking up from their phones and <laughs> Especially people who live in the city. Like yeah. We're lucky in Vancouver because we're so on the peripheral of nature that we can at least, if we look up, we can see the mountains, we can see the nature on our doorstep, if not being uh, exactly in it. Um, have you heard of the uh, Barkley Marathon before? No. Yeah, it's this um, ultra marathon in the Tennessee mountains. They've been doing it for, I think, about 30 years, and only 10 people have ever finished it. Yeah, there's a great documentary called The Race That Eats Its Young, and I would encourage our our listeners and yourself to possibly check it out. It's super lo-fi and quirky, and it's more about the the people who attend the event than almost about the race itself. There's no website for it. If you're the type of person who could possibly complete the Berkeley, you'll be able to find it yourself. 
There's no entry. I think the entry fee is like a dollar fifty. But the documentary itself is really about the types of people who attend this kind of thing. This sort of borderline masochistic, nature-loving, pushing themselves to the extreme of physical capabilities. Was it like that for you guys? Yes, although not necessarily all of those things all at once. Certainly, it was. It's there's a difference between what what was happening. And what I'm now reflecting back on it, looking back and reflecting on my experiences and trying to find some sort of meaning for why we were doing what we're doing. So that's the benefit of, of hindsight. Yeah. But at the time, we just took it for granted that uh, it was definitely... We were aware of the fact that it was somewhat subversive and we, in a way we were thumbing our nose at the establishment. Mm-hmm. In the tradition of Jack Kerouac on the road and... Well, it eventually became the, the beat movement and the hippie movement, and not, not revolutionary. We weren't we weren't trying to replace the government. We were just sidestepping the conventional um, rat race and find, finding meaning and uh, significance in our life to this this other way, which we found from connecting with nature. We, we were considered romantics at the architecture school. I was considered romantic, mm. as if that was. Um, um, Criticism. A pejorative. Yeah, yeah, romantic. pejorative term. Like poor Rob, he's missing a few screws because he, he has this romantic vision of nature and the nature lover. And now I can see back, looking back, that the whole romantic movement in Beethoven, Wordsworth, all these great masters of uh, supreme achievers of human capability were, were all dismissed as, as being somewhat crazy or. Because they were romantic, they, and they, the mainstream um, was more concerned about the nuts and bolts, you know, nitty gritty. Be practical and be, be sensible, and, and don't have these um, romantic notions. Yeah. I think, ironically, you ended up living one of the more practical lives that I yeah. could imagine, yeah. being totally self-sufficient out here, yeah. being true to yourself. What can you tell me about architecture school? Well, the school that I went to was, uh, I was very lucky in that it was very very unusual. It it encouraged us to take our own path and create our own curriculum and and we were assessed on our ability to carry out that that process. And and after five years, the final year, uh, my thesis year, the chairman of the board of examiners, um, um, having listened to me present my thesis, looked at me, and this incidentally was a, a, a man that turned out to be a, a very famous British architect, probably the most famous British architect of the 20th century. And he said to me, well, you're just going to have to go out and do it then, aren't you? And I said, yes, I guess so. And now I can see, back, looking back at it in retrospect, that's exactly what I did. I, I went out and, and lived my, my thesis, which is um, I advocated small villages as a ideal form of human settlement that 99.9% of the time there's been human beings, they've lived in villages and that's ipso facto the, the, the natural way to be, with small pockets of high density, people sharing facilities and particularly sharing green space so the village and the village green was particularly important and I can now look back and again and say, realise now that all the, a lot of the great ball games that modern modern society take for granted soccer, rugby, tennis, hockey, golf. These were all games that started on the village screens of, of England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as we kind of progress further and further into modern capitalist society, it's become 
more and more people are being prescribed like antidepressants, going into therapy for reasons that if you look at some of them, people have a fairly good reason to legitimately be depressed. Yeah. Low wages, high, high. I read one statistic that people, uh, modern American blue collar workers have as much time off as medieval peasants. And I mean, the, 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 the wrapping may have gotten a little bit better, mm -hmm. but in terms of living a life free and, and also connected to the things that make us alive, growing your own food, everything's become so compartmentalized. No one knows where their water comes from. No one knows where their food comes from. It's just delivered to you in this very plastic way that I think takes its toll on people more than we're able to admit. Um, but back to the climbing a little bit. Do you have any notable experiences that stood out to you in your career? Well, yeah, there's one particular um, experience that was a hinge, a turning point. Uh, um, before that, I, ha I had hunches about, about society and about mountaineering and what it was all about. But it was when, um, in 1968, I took part in, along with another British climber, a very early ascent of the nose of El Capitan, which is sort of like the, was then and still is now today, the I, iconic um, climber's climb. And um, we did, a, at that time, you had to be a god to climb El Cap. The, only the very best the American climbers had succeeded in climbing up the, up the nose of El Cap. And uh, mainly because of this other guy that I was with, who had far more experience at climbing than I was, and um, he went on it with seven different partners, and they all psyched out. Mm. And, they could, and how old were you? I was 22 at the time, and I happened to be there in the valley, and um, he's, I, I suddenly became aware of his BDI looking at me, and, and um, cut the story short, we succeeded in, in climbing the nose of El Cap, and it was a really big deal. Every climber in Yosemite was at the top there to, to meet us, and... It was on the front cover of the magazines. Have you ever heard of third man syndrome? No. So oh. it's this... Oh, yeah, I think I know what I mean. Yeah, so it happens during high-stress yeah. events, yeah. most it... commonly mountain climbing. Yeah. I, I've had friends who have been in the 8,000-meter. You know, in fact, my friend Doug Scott was the first Englishman to climb Everest, up the, Everest, the so-called hard way. And he, he he had a bivouac high up on the mountain at 28,000 feet with no sleeping bags and no no cooking, just sleeping out in the open. He had a what up there? A bivouac. What's a bivouac? Uh, sleeping without a tent. And um, he and his buddy had the third man syndrome. They thought there was somebody else yeah. talking to them. Yeah, to explain what that is, yeah. it's a it's a phenomenon where one person or group of people will have a shared hallucination, usually of an extra party member yeah. who's typically helping them out. Yeah. And it's fairly well documented. Ernest Shackleton, Reinhold, Messner, Peter Hillary, they've all written about it happening to them. Too, yeah. And there's some people that think this uh, psychological event has been the inspiration for indigenous legends of... Yeah mountain spirits yeah. and stuff okay. like that. Well, this ties in. I didn't have a third man syndrome, but uh, what happened to us, the, the same result, is that um, it was a five-day climb. And uh, the first two days, I was riddled with doubt and, and fear. 
Um, what am I doing up here? You know, this is crazy. I should go back now while I've got a chance. What was the environment? Was it snowy, well, cold? It was very steep, steep, super oh, okay. steep and super strenuous and exposed. And uh, at the middle of that day, we had a, uh, what's called a pendulum swing. Uh, you swing across on the rope. And uh, when we had done that, we pulled the rope down from that pendulum swing, we cut off all possibility of going back. And that, at that time, there was no way of getting down from there. The only way to come to get out of there was to complete the climb and, and go up. And do a loop. Uh, con- contrary to popular perception or the conventional way of looking at reality, that doesn't make sense. It's, uh, that, but to us, we, know, we noticed that from that point on, all the doubt and fear disappeared, just like that. It, it wasn't an issue anymore. Once you crossed that threshold. Once we crossed that threshold, we were absolutely committed. We, we were experiencing profound calm. And um, the bivouac that night was peaceful and uh, we just uh, relaxed and enjoyed our, the situation. And, and now looking back on it, what happens there is that it's as if we were dragging, pre- prior to that point, we were dragging a sea anchor. This fear and doubt was, it was pulling you back all the time. And once that had been released, you were possessed of a, a freedom and efficiency in your movement and, and ability. You know, you, you empowered with dramatically increased capability, which enabled us to complete the climb relatively smoothly and successfully. And right at the time after that, I wrote an article about it that was published in the, in the magazines called Sorcerer's Apprentice, because I recognised that there was something going on there that was completely inexplicable by society's t- understanding of reality. So I imagine during these climbs, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Exhaustion is a yeah. thing. Lack of sleep. Um, yeah. Did you Have you ever had any hallucinations from, you know, just the strenuous nature of what you've been doing? Yes, yeah. Well, high up on Mount Warrington, the highest mountain in BC that's just not far from here. And uh, a winter ascent of that. And on our last day, we'd been 10 days out from a boat at the head of the inlet. We'd had a night without sleep for the night before and without food. And we were hungry, exhausted. We were all of those things, dehydrated. It was close to the third man syndrome. It was as, as if some, my mind was separate from my body and, and my mind was out there in the environment saying, come on, you know, put that arm up there, yeah, OK, that's right. Put that foot over there, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. And it was an out-of-body experience. Yeah, I think that's what the psychologists think third man syndrome is. It's like a bicameral yeah. coping mechanism where you project this non-exhausted... Yeah. part of yourself sometimes to see physically to help you get through high trauma situations. Okay, well, this is a, a, a really good link to where I'm at now, which is uh, making a film called In the Zone. What you're describing is being, and what I was describing happened to us after we pulled the ropes down on our cap. We were in the zone. We were not only connected, we were committed to engaging with nature. We had to engage with nature in order to survive. And that, that opened up a, a whole realm of um, empowerment that we didn't previously have. And, and it's now with the supreme extreme athletes and um, extreme adventure sports. But that, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be extreme. Now that once you've had that kind of experience, 
you, you can understand that it, it's actually relatively much more common than, uh, than what you think, and it's much more accessible. But it takes having your cage rattled, so to speak, have your mental state of mind shifted for you in order to adjust into this higher state, if you like, of consciousness. Yeah. But I now understand that, that higher state of consciousness is all around us all the while, and the only reason why everybody isn't in that state all the time is because of the social conditioning that makes us afraid. And distracted. And distracted. As well. Yeah. I think the world is designed so, to keep us so distracted. The secret to getting into that zone is to get rid of the things that are stopping you from doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Supreme Athletes are doing. That's what the skiers are doing when they're in the starting gate. On the de- you can see them in... Mm-hmm. Would you liken it to meditation at all? Have yeah, you taken med- much meditation yeah, medita- practice? Yeah, it's effectively meditation is what it is. It's, uh, it's holding back on your thoughts that uh, are constraining you and emptying your mind. Uh, being in the zone is being fully open, fully in the moment, and allowing the situation to tell you. So it requires it to be much more honest. So you've got to get rid of these il- illusions of, of what it's supposed to be and um, enter that state. I'm sure people have it, they're singing and dancing and music and uh, even art. And I, I get it when uh, just stroking the cat, you know, I'm sitting reading my newspaper and the cat jumps on my lap and I say, oh, the cat's jumped on my lap and that's okay. And I go on reading my newspaper and then I feel a little bit of claw action. And like, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, hi, kitty, <laughs> nice kitty. And then she starts purring, purr, 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 and she has shifted my consciousness and my subliminal conditioning the yada yada that's going on in my mind all the time subconsciously mm-hmm. and it required that I be in the present in, in the moment Yeah, and that's the difference between and it, it can be that easily achieved and once you've had it it's easy to have it more often so from then on in my life it's just a matter of having that, that state of mind or consciousness more often the brief moments in sport happen just for brief moments, and then it's past. But um, other more profound ways, like meditation and, and whatever else, um, you can practice and be in that, that position more often, more frequently, and for longer periods of time. Yeah, I think there's a, a concept in Taoism called Wu Wei, which yeah. is uh, effortless action, yeah, that's and right. it seems to be pretty much exactly what you're talking yeah, about. That's it's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, the cultivation of a mental state yeah. in which our actions. Are supposed to line up with yeah. the natural flow connected. of life. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier on that it's obvious to you that society is getting increasingly disconnected, and um, in all the various manifestations of that term, and that was already obvious to me back in the sixties, almost fifty years ago. Do you know anyone who's died climbing? Oh yeah, lots. Yeah. Are we on record now? Yeah, it's, okay. if that's okay. We can right. edit anything out that you don't I want to talk about. I quit counting at 40. Wow. Friends killed in the mountains. Yeah. What was the most common way? Um, none of them were from falling. Very, well, maybe one or two, but most of them were um, avalanches, crevasses, cornices, rock fall in the mountains. Mm. So-called objective hazard. Did you ever worry about your own safety? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose that would be impossible not to. Yeah. Did you ever have any extremely close calls? Not exactly, no. The close calls that I've had have been recent illnesses. Mm. That's another story. <laughs> no, but never in the mountains then, no falls? or. 
In answer to your question, did we ever have any close calls? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised I didn't remember right away. We were involved in an avalanche, and in which our really good friend and uh, one of our young apprentices actually was killed right there. But all of those other examples of friends getting killed, I wasn't actually present at the time. But on this occasion, we were present at the time, and unfortunately, we weren't able to, to save him. And Laurie and I both came within the hair's breadth of uh, getting carried away by this avalanche. We were really close together, we were only 10 feet apart, and Derek was swept away and killed, and I was left standing there. So you didn't get swept away by the I snow, you were just luckily away. standing yeah, yeah. out of the path. I was actually on the climb, and, I managed, and it's kind of difficult to explain without getting into technicalities, but he was more in the direct path of the avalanche funneling down. It started 5,000 feet above us. And that got me thinking, and uh, when you've had that kind of experience, um, it, make, it really makes you think what it's all about, and is it worth the risk? And what would, what would, what's the message that Derek would have, uh, have me convey to, to, to other people? And it's real obvious to me now that the, re- the, the cause of that accident was that we were not in the zone. Hmm. And that was because it was rel- a relatively easy climb. It was right by the highway, Trans-Canada Highway, in the town of Field in the Rockies. And we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And we were sitting in the cafe, chatting and enjoying seeing each other. And we said, let's go and do this little ice climb across the way there. And so when we started climbing, we were still in the cafe mm. state of mind. And we were completely oblivious to the fact that the sun had been on a big snow field way up 5,000 feet above us since uh, 6 o'clock that morning. And if we had been coming up gradually into that situation, right, we would have been in the zone. We were in one state of mind that was totally inappropriate for what we were doing. And that's what I'm advocating, why I teach people how to be in the zone now, and uh, not only for mountaineering, but for all all aspects of life. I'm having to do it now because of Parkinson's disease. And ironically, I'm able to uh, alleviate the main symptom of my Parkinson's disability, which affects my ability to walk properly, by being in the zone. By being conscious, by what, being in the moment. So just you saw me walking up from the dock yet to the house. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very focused. Yeah, and you I, are. And I can switch that on. When I'm eating, I have to focus. I have to be in the moment because otherwise I bite my tongue and bite my gums and, mm-hmm. and my, uh, my muscles aren't doing what they're supposed to do. But by being conscious, by switching into the, the zone mode, enables you to, and the modern science is supporting the fact that the brain is much more plastic than they previously thought. Yeah, so, neuroplasticity. Uh, so um, uh, neural pathways are able to go around the diversion, like a traffic diversion, go around the injured area and, and deliver the proper message. That's, that's what I'm now having to apply just to get by every day. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ironic because I've been teaching that before. <laughs> For 40 years, as a, a, a way of preventing accidents in the mountain, and now having to, having to do practice what I preach, and that's what's uh, attracting a lot of attention. Because it's not just about mountaineering anymore; it's about how, how to uh, live with a uh, debilitating illness. Yeah. Have you heard of Wim Hof before? No. He's a Dutch. It's hard to really define what he is because he's just kind of a. An abnormality. He's a guy who 
experienced extreme tragedy. His wife died when he was quite young in his mm-hmm. like twenties, and to cope with the the, tra- the tra- trauma tra- of tra- dealing with that, he started meditating in mm-hmm. buckets of ice in extreme cold. Mm-hmm. And since then, he's climbed Everest in shorts and boxers. Right. He walks everywhere without shoes. Well, not yeah, everywhere, but yeah, on. Ex- yeah, yeah. You have heard of him before, yeah. and I think he's probably tapping into a very similar thing yeah. that you are. Where his whole philosophy is mind over matter, yeah. and uh, yeah. and has proven that the the mind can cognitively overcome yeah. things that science can't yeah. necessarily explain or has yeah. been un- unable to explain so far. Uh, yeah, but science itself is, is changing, has changed dramatically, particularly with quantum, quantum physics, is where science has shown us that we're living in a, in a world that is very different from what we've been taught to believe and are continuing to be taught to believe because it, uh, there's a vested interest in maintaining that understanding and that's conducting the propaganda that holds people in that. The fact that science has, ch- has changed has led tremendous support to my confidence in, uh, to proceed with this uh, wisdom, if you like, that uh, I have survived for a dangerous spot, and I have survived uh, three, uh, one at least one life-threatening, two pretty serious bouts of uh, illness, you might say, and I'm still here, mm-hmm. and... Uh, <laughs> And um, partly, I get a lot of confidence from the fact that science is uh, actually supporting this, um, what would what have previously been considered extraordinary, yeah. in the sense of not just being unusual, but in the sense that it, it defies explanation and conventional term understanding. Mm-hmm. So specifically, the understanding that we live in a world of separate objects that are competing with each other for survival, that is completely obsolete and scientifically science is a hundred years now realize we're all one unified interconnecting field of energy which is interfering with each other and transformations constantly occurring and the way it's supposed to run is an ecosystem of complementary parts i think a lot of Ultra capitalists have hijacked darwin's survival of the fittest absolutely to use it in a like a This horrible, yeah. you know... Specifically, Darwin said survival of the fittest, but he also understood that the fittest can be the, the most capable of adapting. The organism that's most capable of adapting mm-hmm. uh, is, in some cases, the, the organisms that are most capable of cooperating have the greatest ability to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they know now that there's this great book and I think maybe a documentary as well called The Secret Life of Trees, yeah. where they've realized that trees are egalitarian. Yeah. They, uh, they, there's, I can't remember what they're called, they're some sort of uh, networks of... Um, the mycelium. Uh, my, mycelium yeah, yeah, mycelium networks that uh, trees of differing species yeah. Yeah. will still share water and nutrients yeah. with each other, which totally flies in yeah. the face of the yeah. kind of... Yeah, well, you know, human well, perspective well, well, of my, dominance. My life, first of all, is a mountaineer, and then there's a, a homesteader building a, a self-sufficient homestead, off-grid homestead. Is everything in my experience of being close to nature, especially spending long periods of time in deep wilderness, which we, I have, and we have done. Canadian wilderness. Canadian wilderness is one of the few places in the planet where you can actually get this experience, where there's no sign of human passage. And you you have no choice but to communicate directly with nature, 
and that immediately makes it empower and tremendously empowering uh, sense of being part of something much bigger than yourself, lending support, lending uh, a bit. Uh, this uh, ability to survive and ability to achieve um, way more than what you would otherwise be able to do. How did you end up in Canada then? Well, I came out for Expo 67, which ironically was a societal uh, world fair. Uh, Where was that? Montreal. Mm. It was the biggest event in the 20th century. We all dreamed that they were, we were going to have a technology that would uh, provide us with a new and better world. Buckminster Fuller Domes and uh, the hippie movement to peace and love and it was at its height before it all suddenly went bang in the night and, and got suppressed. Yeah, so I imagine it's like a technology conference set in the environment of the high 1960s sort yeah. of culture. That must have been interesting. Um, why did you stay if you were just there for the event? Well, I had to take a year out from my architectural studies to do some practical so I ended up doing my practical in Montreal. I particularly wanted to go out west and uh, experience the, the the mountains, and the Canadian Rockies, and the or the American mountains, and and that's why I ended up in Yosemite in 1968 and uh, climbed the Knolls, mm-hmm. and uh, also at the same time experienced the Canadian Mountains. And later, a little bit later, I went on an expedition to Baffin Island, six six weeks in the mountains with eight guys. Uh, 50 miles away from the nearest Inuit village, and, and that was you know, 200 miles away from the nearest um, anything that considered to be a town. So we were way out in the deep wilderness. Did you have any contact with the Inuit peoples no. on the way well, out? Well, they, on the way on the way in and on the way out, we had quite a bit of contact with them because we ended up spending almost a week in their village. What was that like? It was wonderful. It was one of the best experience of my life. They're very friendly. Oh, they're amazingly beautiful people. And then we was, uh, made a little base camp on the airport because we were waiting for favourable conditions for our flight out. And um, it went on for quite a few days and the kids would come and hang out with us in our camp and they were always laughing and joking and playing. And we asked, the, even right through the night, and we asked these kids, uh, when do you guys go to sleep? They said, oh, we go to sleep in the wintertime. <laughs> and then the older guys started coming around and they, they were fondling, they didn't speak English like the kids did, that they were fondling, they couldn't stop fondling our carabiners, you know, mm. snap, 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 just and, fiddling and, with them, and playing with the ropes, you know, and and any slightest suggestion of anything funny, they would immediately crack up with a huge smile across the face. And uh, one one morning, this guy showed up with a, a brown paper bag, and he didn't say anything. He just sort of put it down on the seat beside him, and just sitting there smiling and. One of our guys has uh, said, "Feel of curiosity. What's in the? What's in the? Let's have a look. What's, what have you got in the paper bag?" And he opened it up, and it's a brand new pair of sealskin boots. He gave it to you. He was offering it to us. We suddenly realised he, he wanted to trade ah. climbing rope. Ah, did you take him up on it? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I took him up on it because uh, our main leader of our expedition suddenly realised we could save ourselves a whole bundle of money here because uh, of cash. Because uh, we had to pay for excess baggage, it was called. Ah. Freight, excess freight, all our climbing gear, and we had to pay to, to put that on an airplane. So you could just give it to them, trade it give to it them? Give it to them and trade it to them for sealskin boots and soaps and cool stuff. <laughs> wow. At an auction. <laughs> it lasted the whole day. I bet. Oh, that's so it fun. was wonderful. Yeah. So, what made you decide to live off grid? 
Well, by this time, I'd become quite convinced that um, I couldn't live in the city anymore and that um, I could have a better life living minimally um, out on the edge. And um, it was then a matter of keeping on travelling until I found a place where I could do that. And then I stumbled across it here on the BC coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people today have a very similar dream. There's been a bit of a resurgence in the back-to-land movement. Was it like that at the time? Were, were there a lot of people in the kind of 60s hippie movement? Yeah, there were indeed. And um, the, the difference between then and now is that the hippies had, had so much success in their, their impact on society that the authorities had to take them in hand and, and eliminate it. So the Nixon Law and, Order, Law and Order campaign in the United States specifically took all the fun out of being a hippie you either had to take it on as a revolution if you believed in that much or, or you, if you wanted to continue living in peace and love and happiness you had to escape to the, back to the land and find uh, get connected with nature and, and avoid all the trappings of uh, careers and, uh, and um, success in society so they, they were doing what they are doing because basically they had no choice they, if they if they wanted to have anything like the kind of life they wanted to have, they had to leave the cities. I think you made the right choice. If you look at all of the people who tried to yeah. fight the system, you get yeah. a lot of political it, prisoners yeah. and people it, assassinated. And, it, and it's just that same phenomenon as when we cut loose from the fixed ropes. We cut loose from the umbilical cord, there's no going back. And that the people today are still too, the young people today are still way too... Um, attached, attached, and yeah. too soft. Um, I think technology is increasing that people can cur- barely they imagine going the on their phone. They have to have the courage to snap out of it. Say, yeah. "All right, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm going to have a life out in the wilds on the edge somewhere and get a TP and a, a fishing rod and a, a canoe and see what I'm, where you end up." Mm-hmm. So, how did you end up on Morel? Well. Um, <laughs> It's an interesting story. I had boarded when I first came to course, I was still working in an architect's office in Vancouver, but saving up a bit of money, and I bought myself a small sailing boat because I could see that on the BC coast, if you wanted to see it, you had to have a boat. Yeah. And I got a boat, and we went up into the Tobler, and we wanted to climb Mount Waddington. We'd heard of Mount Waddington, and you must be up here somewhere. and really know where. But, uh, so you just uh, headed up? Just headed up. And we came actually through this area and we didn't actually make it up into Beauty into Mount Warrington, but we did climb a mountain up in Toba. And we came back into Vancouver to sort of regroup the two of us. And we'd heard that the cheapest place to tie up at that time in downtown Vancouver was Clay's Wharf in Granville Island, right underneath the bridge, which is now in the process of the city of starting the, the redevelopment scheme to revamp Granville Island. Mm-hmm. Into what it is now, the marketplace. Uh, now. Yeah. And Clay's Wharf was a slum, um, and they, they were all, they were evicted. They'd been given, so we tied up at uh, we could pull into the wharf, and there's this beautiful dark-haired hippie chick mm-hmm. with a baby um, standing on the end of the dock. And we said, uh, is that, "Can we come in here? Is a place to tie up?" He said, "Oh, of course. There's room, lots of room. Come on in. Come and have a cup of tea." And I, and I'm wearing that little boat over there. So we went over, and within 10 minutes of being there, the guy was trying to sell me a share in the land corp on Morel Island. Within 10 minutes? Yeah. This is also the place, the exact same people as where Greenpeace started. 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so the people that started our co-op that uh, purchased this piece of land where we are now, right, exactly where you are looking out the window, was um, these were spin-off guys from Greenpeace who, again, they were having to get out of the city. They'd been evicted and they were given a year's notice. They went ahead and bought the 160 acres and I ended up putting my $3,000 in as a one-tenth share in this piece of property. And I have absolutely nothing uh, except my boat, little tiny little boat, sailboat. Right at that time, I met Laurie. And um, that's another whole story. And Laurie and I hit it off, and Laurie's little girl kissed, and then invited them to come up and live with me on my tent platform on this spot here. Mm-hmm. That was 44 years ago. You must have been very charming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was uh, was she used to living in a kind of more... Uh, well, she, well, she, she was a climber herself. She was a climber herself. Yeah. So and also, she was a tree planter, so she knew about uh, um, getting hands dirty yeah. and, Tenting and, it. And, and physical hard work and, uh, and enjoying, uh, she had very positive attitude. Yeah, they all fit together. So obviously this place has evolved a lot from the, I read in your book, At Home in Nature, that it started off as basically just a, a one-room little cabin shed sort of situation, which is a far cry from what we've been living in the past day. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts in this place, and I think... In a practical sense, a lot of people would like to understand how you've managed to pull this off. Maybe we could talk about a little bit about where you get your electricity, your running water, and how that all operates. Well, the, the key to the, the, that shift is that um, I understood that you had to you had to make some money somewhere. I mean, there's minimal, minimalism and there's minimalism, but you know you can't live with, with, with no money at all. So I um, had friends on Quadra that were builders. And even though I turned my back on the architectural profession, I uh, was still interested in buildings. I'm sure it came and, in handy. And I uh, worked on, I signed on with those guys as just a junior carpenter and sweeping the floors. And I noticed one time at coffee break that uh, they were discussing how these two pieces of wood should go together. And, and I just grabbed a cardboard box and a carpenter's pencil and a piece of plywood and a carpenter's pencil and did a sketch of it. And they said, hey, you can draw. I said, yeah, I can draw. I don't. I just. I don't know what to draw. Mm-hmm. So oh, no, we we know what what what, what we want. Uh, why don't you do some drawings? We'll tell you what to do. And so then they got the clients to pay for it. So the client was paying for me to do some basically architectural drawings. But uh, they were drawings that the builder the builder needed as opposed to the architect's conventional role. So I found a niche for myself by. Uh, doing drawings and helping people to design buildings from a builder's point of view and how to get the builder involved in the design. Mm-hmm. And, and so the owner and the builder and the designer all worked as a team. And that I didn't uh, systematically make that decision, but that's, again, reflecting back on what happened, I, I can see that that's what, that's what it was that was happening. And over the years, I developed a, a profitable little design practice that enabled us to get more openly mobile and uh, gave, gave me the contacts that I needed to build this house. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the one difference is, fundamental difference is, that we never did cross that line, is that we never borrowed money. We never went more than $2,000 in debt at the building supplies. Uh, running our visa over, we never did that. We never allowed ourselves to get into serious debt. We never had a mortgage. 
So we, we paid for everything as we, that we've got as we went along. And if you do that over a long period of time, like over 40 years, you, you end up with something. Mm-hmm. But most people pay for their house twice, two and a half times over. Now, I knew that from architecture school. That's one thing I did know about reality. And I learned from architecture school that mortgages, uh, people pay for the house mm-hmm. two and a half times over. So I thought, well, who's, where's the other one and a half times going? Why, why do you have to pay for everything two and a half times? Interest. What, what's happening to that other money? And uh, the answer is that somebody's getting fat somewhere. Yeah. And they're doing nothing but accumulate all of those. Some people are getting extremely fat in yeah. Vancouver these days, and, I'll tell you. And I said, stuff that for a lark. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, I suppose you were lucky that you were able to, you, you bought the land yeah, for $3,000, which obviously was more back yeah. then. How old were you when you, you moved out here? Um, well, at 75, so I was 25. Okay. I was born in 1945. I'm an original boomer. I was born a month after the war finished. Yep. I find time to start a home. So how do you get, uh, how do you get electricity? How do you, how do you, how the, the, I'm wondering what the nuts and bolts of, independent living are for you guys? Well, I, I'm still an architect and an academic and still interested in, uh, you know, I read a lot of alternate uh, technology and uh, a lot of intermediate technology literature, so I was aware of these things theoretically. So we had books. Uh, we, uh, we, we didn't realise that we had, a, we had a small stream here and with quite a little bit of head, you know, height with water falling down that we could run on a little hydro wheel. And we um, gradually got the wherewithal and the expertise to to run that. Now that's been operating for 25 years, eight months a year. The stream dries up in the summertime, but by that time we have solar panels. If you look out the garden, you see the bank of solar panels. We've got now one of those solar panels we had in 1975. Still running. Still running. Wow. And nobody nobody had heard of solar panels at that time. Mm-hmm. But I had a friend who was a climber, who was a, a physicist at UBC doing research on, on photovoltaic cells. And he came up and saw us with our kerosene lamps and shook his head and said, oh, those are dangerous and they're dirty and they're polluting. And Good place to burn your house down got as well. Go, I got to give you a, pa- a solar panel. So he gave us a 12-volt battery and a solar panel and a fluorescent bulb. That fluorescent bulb that hums in the kitchen there now, yeah. that original fluorescent bulb. That he From 1975? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It says something to for old technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sustainability. Yeah, not planned obsolescence. Um what would you say was the hardest part of living off grid? The hardest part. Well, the hardest part is now uh, making um, coming to terms with the fact that I've been severely reduced in my what I'm able to do, even my borderline ability to walk, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think I could easily feel sorry for myself and, uh, and become pretty pathetic. Um, having suffered that, I lost my boat, I lost my my, perfect, my, you know, my work, and I lost my health all at the same time. And fortunately, I didn't lose my loving support from my family and friends. And with that, and the newfound emphasis on the importance of that, um, I'm able to put it all into practice and help me combat this um, debilitating Parkinson's disease 
It probably it, it probably is coming on all the while, but I think I'm able to hold it back some up. Yeah, I think you're doing pretty marvelously. You said it's four years yeah. as, uh, yeah. ago was your diagnosis. So this is this is a tougher battle, mm-hmm. but I'm going about it the same way as all of the other battles, if you like, and, and turn it around, and making it, the adversity into a, a challenge, as, as mountaineers do. Mm-hmm. So this place started off as a collective. What were some of the biggest challenges on that well, front socially? Personal differences, mm-hmm. personality problems by far. A lot of independent thinkers, I oh, imagine. Yeah. yeah, we were a pretty pathetic bunch. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, we couldn't get along. You know, they, uh, uh, were pretty dysfunctional. Still are pretty dysfunctional. But uh, somehow, because they've all now left and not actually present on the island, we don't have to put up with it so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, you won that situation, I guess. Everyone left. Yeah. <laughs> and the younger members, the children of the members, get along great, because the one thing that we did succeed in doing that we set out to do was creating an intentional community for our kids. And we were very, very successful in that. The kids get along fine, and they all share this wonderful experience of being brought up here. And they all love this place. But not so the adults. Mm. Well, that's, you know, there's something to be said about the next generation. And yeah. they, you, you, you tilled the soil and put in the hard work, but I think in the end, if the children turned out as well as they could have, or as well as they did, I think it was all worth it, even yeah, if they're not well, here. Uh, uh, unquestionably, it was all worth it. And even the bickering and the personality problems, had. I, I, I include myself in it. I was probably a difficult person to get along with. Some people found me so anyway. But in the big scheme of things, as you say, those differences were relatively insignificant to what we've achieved. And meanwhile, we're an important part of a a, a different kind of community that's uh, evolved on the next island around the school there. All the people living off-grid and and that we didn't set out to cre- create a community with a, s- a certain ideology. They're just people that um, tried to l- live further out and, um, and wanted their kids to, to go to school. And uh, that fundamental requirement, doesn't matter how rich they are, required that they um, bring their kids to school and uh, congregate at a certain place. So the community has evolved around the school. Mm-hmm. And around the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very successful. And we, I don't think we'd be able to, to do what we're doing out here without that. Mm-hmm. Are you still friends with any of the original collective members? Yeah, we're still friends, but even the ones that we were friends with, we have had difficulties and serious issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you could go back, is there anything you would have done differently? Uh, not really. Well, that's good. I could probably think of something. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't stress yourself too much. Um, so you're an architect by training. I'm wondering, obviously, there's going to be some obvious examples here, but what did you want to do differently by living here that you couldn't do in a more traditional environment, like a small town? Or I could have just gone to live in an, an existing village and... In in England and do, do what I did, but that's um, and sometimes I think uh, that um, I would be happy now back in an English village. But 
the truth is that England has changed so much and the villages, uh, even the, the more remote villages, are, are half the people that live there are, uh, have just weekend or holiday homes and they're not real full-time village citizens, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Residents. Residents. So it is, it is all different now, so it's pointless to, to reminisce and wish it was different. But the village might still happen. You see, I thought we were signing on to a village when I bought into this place. And it still might happen, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're all uh, but of it the might original. happen out of necessity. The more society falls apart, separates itself out, and climate change and whatever is pretty threatening. Plus, the politics is really seriously threatening. More numbers of people might start to come out and live here because, because mm-hmm. they, they too have no choice. They, one reason or another, jobs and economy and the, the climate, climatic change. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. But the lucky ones might succeed in finding a bit of plot of land somewhere where they can grow some food. I mean, we used to be able to fish. We used to be able to catch a fish any time we want when we first came here. It was easy. Now, now it's not easy to catch a fish. Why do you think that is? It's all been fished out mm. right in front of our noses. Yeah. So do you think there's a way to reconcile the rising human population with a healthier relationship with nature? Well, what, what I'm advocating is that if, I, if my experience and our experience of living an alternative lifestyle has anything to offer, it's to avoid mortgages and live, live more minimally instead of being driven by the, the, the mythological notion that... The, if I make enough money, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. If learn to be happy more directly, and this is why I'm advocating being in the zone. So, by be, being in zone becomes the important thing in life. You get uh, this incredible uh, feeling of being in unity with uh, with nature. That uh, is a far superior way, uh, more much more direct, unencumbered way without doing any damage, it doesn't cost any money, it's just a state of mind. People could find happiness much more directly simply by living more minimally and less emphasis on material mm-hmm. aggrandizement, more emphasis on connectivity with your environment, with nature. Yeah. Well, we talk about limited resources, and that is absolutely a factor, but there's a, just a tremendous amount of waste that happens in in yeah. the civilized yeah, world, quote-unquote. And, and it's not only waste, it's, it's pollution. Yeah. All of that waste is actually polluting. Mm-hmm. Well, perfectly... Us- I'm talking about, like, food that gets thrown oh, yeah. away, perfectly yeah. usable build. Yeah. I work in the film industry, and everything is built to be shot once, and then generally it's not worth their yeah. while to put it in storage, or yeah. that show's going to be done. So you end up just throwing it away, perfectly yeah. good building materials well, in the bin. When I was reading this kind of stuff, which I don't anymore, um, I understood that the United States cons- consumes two-thirds of the world's food, and of that, one-third doesn't even go down their mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have like the rate of starvation reaching the ra- in Africa reaching the rate of obesity uh, in the United a, States. Uh, and I doubt if there's any country in the world as as, uh, uh, as miserable as the uh, United States is right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and, and it's so counterintuitive because if you look at the kind of capitalist narrative of success, these people are supposed to be the winners. Donald Trump is yeah. one of the 
you know, extremely rich, successful guy who's become the president of the United yeah. States, I think he's probably a miserable well, old fuck. Well, that's it. that is crazy. Mm-hmm. I think society thinks climbers are crazy. I think society is crazy. I know if we if we propel these pathologically flawed people to the highest echelon of society, yeah, you're absolutely right. What does that say? It's just self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Inevitable. So you've uh, been involved in quite a bit of activism. You were part mm-hmm. of the Friends of Strathcona Park. Maybe we could talk about your work with them. Well, as I say, the Canadian wilderness is just uh, one of the um, greatest things that I, that I stumbled across. And so other, so few other countries in the world have anything to, to compare with it. And, and so few Canadians have any real idea of what it is. I mean, three or four, I mean, people might be on the edge of it uh, quite easily. Mm-hmm. But to actually be three or four days hiking in um, an experience totally pristine wilderness is, is a, an awe-inspiring euphoria to feel part of something much bigger yourself and that is a tremendous spiritual resource and then to be in a situation where you've got this incredibly beautiful place in Strathcona Park, the heart of the, in this alpine beauty, this magical environment and be threatened by bulldozers literally we could see the bulldozers coming in What were they coming for? For trees? In, for silver Ah, uh, shiny rock Silver mine, Classic. proposed silver mine that the government allowed them to build in the middle of a pristine park Mm-hmm. And we couldn't bear to see that happen. It's like watching your mother being raped, you know. We had to lie down in front of those bulldozers. We never did dream that we'd ever win the battle, but we did because what we did started to escalate and, and through synergy. And that's um, another one of the great, that's part of this magic that uh, we were talking about before. Um, it's unexplainable understanding extra extraordinary reality that loving connectivity escalates on itself like a mycelial so, so, network for human beings yeah, so the the whole is more than the sum of the parts when the whole is more than the sum of the parts as it always is in nature it's actually creating extra extra energy is being created so that protest went on television every night for six weeks and it snowballed on itself and it escalated dramatically and from a few people all of a sudden it was a lot of people, and then six weeks later, the TV company did a public opinion and poll that showed that 75% of British Columbians wanted their parks protected. And at that point, the government backed off. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the tactics that you guys used specifically? Well, it, it was all essentially non-violent. And uh, we, we made our decisions in, in circle, and we, uh, we often used the uh, passing the speaking feather it's from the First Nations people. Mm-hmm. And so we only have one person speaking at a time. And you, you, when you finished saying what you wanted to say, you would nod and pass the stick on to whoever else wanted to speak. So that was a remarkably successful way of decision-making. But basically it was the love. It was the love that we... Uh, we're talking about love. People loved that park. Were you physically stopping the bulldozers yeah, with, yeah. with your body yeah, so you'd yeah. go in shifts yeah, to yeah, sort of exactly. make a human chain? Exactly. That's, yeah. that's exactly what we were doing. Direct and action. They would, they would have a court order to evict us, so the police would, would come and exercise that court order and t- take people away, and people refused to be taken, so the police had to pick them up bodily and lift them into the paddy wagons and take them off to jail. 
And then you had other people who would volunteer to come in. Yeah, you know, the average weekend, weekends, and most the, when the activities take, took place, you might have 100 people following the chain, and three or four people at a time would agree to, to lie down and, and have require the police to take them away. And that would be filmed on live TV. Yeah. And we, were, we weren't rebels, we weren't anarchists or... We weren't advocating revolution. We are just advocating that they shouldn't be allowed to build silver mines in our pristine parks. Mm -hmm. Specific and, causes. And a lot of decent-looking middle-class people on TV seen them getting carried away by the police. Mm -hmm. it, it, it escalated again and, uh, and became a really big event. Did anyone face any significant legal no, we, ramifications no, from that? No, we, we were all actually acquitted. That's Six, great. 64 of us were yeah. arrested and all of us were acquitted on technicality. Yeah, that's lucky. A lot of people at Burnaby Mountain weren't so lucky. Yeah, people that's had true. extreme, yeah. extreme sentences. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your books. So you've written two, one of which I've read. Uh, the first one was Towards the Unknown Mountains, mm -hmm. and your most recent one, At Home in Nature. What motivated you to write these books? Well, I had time on my hands and I, it's something that I could do. I did have uh, some interesting stories that I found that people who enjoyed our stories just around dinner table conversations. So people would say, why, why don't you write a collection of these stories? Somebody might be interested in reading them. Mm -hmm. Well, it brought me here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's a good way to pass the time, I guess. And you're actually working on a new book right now to be released concurrently with the film The Zone, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit at the end. But mm -hmm. um, just to talk about your sort of experiences out here, kind of notes I want to check off. Have you had any notable experiences with wild animals, any, any weird stuff like that? Well, we have had experiences with wild animals, yeah, quite a few. But um, we, we haven't ever seen any evidence of... Uh, anybody actually been adversely affected by the wild animals, mm -hmm. and the wisdom that we gained from our, our elders of people that have spent time out living out in the wild is that, that um, basically just make a lot of a lot of noise, and the, the animals will keep away, mm -hmm. and they're not actually a threat. No, it's not a hundred percent clear and true, but it has been so far in our experience. Have you ever watched Grizzly Man? It's a Werner Herzog documentary about this guy who was obsessed with uh, yeah. grizzly bears. And yeah, I've seen the equivalent stories, yeah. Mm -hmm. How much of that was a true story and how much is fabricated, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <coughs> well, he filmed but, a lot of it. Well, it is true that people um, have been killed with grizzly bears and even black bears, but there's more people being killed by bees. That's true. Yeah, the statistics are pretty funny. You know, yeah. falling coconuts kill more people than shark attacks and yeah. all sorts of stuff like yeah. that. No one's, you know, you know, there's no big coconut culling operations happening yeah. in the Caribbean. What about strange experiences with weather and storms? I know we talked about your um, the avalanche that you were involved yeah. with, but any any other strange experiences with weather? Anything that sticks out to you? Well, weather's a good example of um, of reading the signs. I was reading, I was explaining it to you just what happened this morning. Classic, when you understand what's going on in the, um, the system, the weather system, it's, it's much less chaotic, much less uh, 
um, this is following through the pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this morning you showed me how a weather system operates using yeah. a, a plate yeah. spinning, so that was quite, pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I read about in your book was that you've in fact already died five times of a single heart attack, which is obviously a pretty extreme experience, and I'm wondering how that changed your outlook. Well, first of all, it wasn't actually a heart attack. Oh, okay. My heart, my heart saved me. Okay. If it hadn't been for my heart, I would have died. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about that. But uh, it was actually my aorta, mm. as the main artery coming out of your heart, that um, was damaged and leaking. Mm-hmm. And that had to be replaced. And that's uh, a very rare this, um, event, yeah. and it's usually fatal. Only 3% chance of survival. Mm-hmm. You've been pretty lucky in, lucky in many senses. Yeah, I was unlucky to have it happen in the first place, but incredibly lucky to have survived. Yeah, yeah. Did, so how did, did that change your, your way of looking at the world? This was how many years ago? Uh, ten years ago, ten I years celebrated ago. my born-again birthday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? You celebrated? In September, well, quietly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So the other part of your question is it affected my way of looking at things. Well, I did come out of the hospital with a, a, a greatly increased allegiance to the power of love. I mean, I knew the power of love before. For instance, the synergy that happened. I and mean, synergy is just a form, a one form of love. When I use the word love, I'm talking about any kind of connectivity. When there's connectivity, there's love. And there's obviously all relative, there's different degrees of connectivity, different degrees of, of love. Mm-hmm. But um, synergy is one dramatic uh, example of, of love, and con- connectivity feeds on itself and spirals. Yeah. So I came out of the hospital almost on a mission to be a, a spokesperson for the importance of love, not just to take it for granted, but to. When, it, when it's happening, to realise myself that it's happening, but also share that realisation. This is love that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. I connect him in. So it's, lo- it's love of you know, family and friends and community, but it's also love of your environment, natural or social. It's uh, something, love of the connectivity. Our true selves is our connectivity with our external environment. Did that new perspective help after your Parkinson's diagnosis? Yes, sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could describe some of the things that you do to help ward off the symptoms. Because like I said, you're four years in, and if you hadn't told me, or and I didn't know, I, I'm not sure if I would have noticed, to be honest. You're, you're very focused when you're walking, but that doesn't seem particularly out of the, the ordinary. You don't have the typical shaking symptoms yeah. is that something that you've cultivated through the zone or maybe we could talk about yeah, that for a bit i think so yeah it's um if you follow the the, the rationale the components of the zone what i'm now calling the zone you'll see that uh, it's simply it's really a matter of being conscious as simple as that because 90 I, scientists have pointed out that 95% of behavior in modern society is not actually conscious. It's subconscious conditioning. Mm-hmm. A classic example is driving a car. 
Have you ever re- have you ever had the experience of driving the car and actually pay attention, paying attention to driving the car? You're thinking about something totally different Every, right by the time I, you get there. And everybody says the same thing. They're able to drive a car and not get killed by, without paying attention. Mm-hmm. But, it, but at the same time, everybody would also have no trouble agreeing with them. It would be less... It'd be much safer if you were paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you can do it without paying attention is, is an attribute to the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. That, um, we, we wouldn't have survived without the ability of the subconscious mind to take care of things, enable, enabling the, the conscious mind to deal with the unforeseen. Mm-hmm. The, the, the driving a car example is, again... Uh, appropriate because you have to pay attention, you have to use your conscious mind to learn to drive a car Mm -hmm. once you've got that pattern established you can shunt it over to the unconscious mind and leave the conscious mind free but so heavily is the conditioning subliminal conditioning from television advertising right through all across the board in modern society that a lot of people uh, I quite they think it's possible that a lot of people live their whole life without actually having been conscious. And certainly a lot of people spend a lot of their lives without being conscious. By being conscious, you're able to um, be more open and more flexible and more empowered, mm-hmm. and including the ability to be happy. When you, when you connect with your environment, it's an example of your true self as your connection. So... It, it's almost like what mountaineering is about is self-discovery, discovering that your true self is your connectivity, is your love. Mm-hmm. So climbing is all about love. But you could say the same thing about almost everything else. About that when you're doing it for love, you are much more empowered. And it's so easily available. It doesn't cost any money. It doesn't impact on the environment. It's just a matter of understanding the difference between being conscious and being un- unconsciously conditioned. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does, and I think it ties in with a lot of experiences I've had where I've been frustrated with a situation, like my phone breaks, and for it's in the shop for yeah. like a week, and it's on paper a massive inconvenience, but because I'm not subject to that constant mental pull to like get back to someone via email or download some music or something like that I'll have these moments where I'll be sitting on my parents front porch and I'll just watch the wind flow through the trees and hit every tree as it goes down the block and it's the most centered and present that I've felt in weeks and it's completely free very cheap highs and it's much better when you're doing repairing your gadget that's broken down or when you're doing some carpentry to actually take a deep breath Meditate and let the let the situation speak for it. Mm-hmm. So, as we discussed a little bit, this place requires a decent amount of maintenance to function independently. And as you two get older, what's the long term plan for <laughs> uh, being able to continue living out well, here? That's a good question. Laurie is taking more and more of the load all the time. She's very uh, capable. I mean it. Um, before I had this Parkinson's, I was able to carry so approximately 
Listen, my estimation, Larry might disagree with that. <laughs> now she's taking 95% of the, the, the chores that are required to, to keep us functioning here. But we also have the possibility of getting some new people in here, living here. That possibility is not uh, without, um, the re- without the realms of possibility. You have woofers who come and stay. Yeah, yeah. We might even be able to get some new members in our co-op and have a, a presence here, which would mean we could do a lot more sharing and we've got skills and funk mm-hmm. systems, you know, Wi-Fi and, and mm-hmm. whatever. Well, it's a symbiotic relationship with the young people with the muscle and the older people with the experience. And I know tons of people in Vancouver who talk about this desire to live off-grid and live independently for all the reasons that we've discussed, the disconnection with nature. That that way of thinking hasn't gone away. And you may be alone living on this collective now, but there's people who still own their share. I think it's inevitable that some of their kids or grandkids are going to end up moving here at some point. So, good. That's a, that that answer makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so to close out with your most recent project, you're the subject of an upcoming film called The Zone, mm-hmm. which is obviously related to what we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, what can you tell me about it? Well, it, it was not my initiative. It, it was a couple of years ago. I was invited to speak at the Bounce Mountain Film Festival, just in a storytelling seminar. And um, and I was asked to tell the stories of what it was like climbing with some famous climbers in Canadian history. And it's just two 10-minute uh, slots. And after one of those um, presentations, a lot of people milling about, and one young lady came up to me and said that uh, she's so impressed that she, she would like to make a film of a story. She happened to be the daughter of the publisher of my book, the second book. At home, and nature. at home in Asia. And we got chatting, Grace, uh, the young lady, and her dad about what would be the subject of the, the film. And she said, well, all through my books, she's, she heard this reference to the zone, the zone. And she'd like to know more about that and see if I could uh, zero in on it. And her dad said, we'd like, like to contract me to write another book on that subject because he thought that it would possibly appeal to a wider audience mm-hmm. and sell more books. Yeah. So that's how it got started. And right away, uh, she uh, came up here and made it, uh, to see us and uh, see our place. And she asked me the question, if you had the opportunity to climb one more mountain, where would it be? And I thought quickly, the process of elimination... I arrived at this local mountain here, uh, right up behind us in the Mainland Coast Range, which we've got a lot of emotional attachment to, but it's also uh, very close and practical, whereas the Rockies is too far away up in the, up in the Coast Range Mountains. It's too, too inaccessible and expensive to get, etc., yeah. etc. Et so we very quickly decided that it would be good to make the film and have as much of the film set in the background of being actually up in the mountain. And it's just snowballed from that. And Which mountain are you, uh, are you climbing Mount, in the Mount film? Mount Manderest. Manderest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The subject of the film is you talking about your own personal philosophy with the rising action in the background being this ascent, this yeah. final ascent. Well, what uh, Grace, the young lady that's actually directing the film and approached me originally, uh, what, what uh, she caught on to was this uh, Parkinson's aspect 
that I was able to demonstrate the ability to hold off Parkinson's symptoms. There's an immense appeal to a much wider audience to Parkinson's. So, in fact, uh, people started putting money into when they produced these trailers, yeah. fundraising money. Yeah, came a Kickstarter. Into, huge, yeah, Kickstarter. Yeah. A huge amount of money to me. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Came in from all over the world. But one of the people that donated was the Par- Alberta Parkinson's Association, and they were interested in, uh, in what, it, what it was that I was doing. And so the, the film shows me walking up over very rugged ground, not just for a few minutes, but all day long, for me to actually be so focused that I could stay focused for that length of time and enable me to do things that would not have otherwise seemed possible. Mm-hmm. Little, little as it may be, it's not like climbing the nose or cap, it's just like, nor is it like walking in the park, because there is no trail. It's trailless, rugged, deep wilderness. And are you still fundraising for the project? Could I leave a link to... Uh, well, I understood that they have as much money as they needed and the, the, film, the film is now in the editing stage. Mm-hmm. Well, if the producers change their mind, they can reach out to me and we can, we can uh, leave a link. I'm sure well, I'm sure there'll be better. expenses that I don't even know about. So yeah. you could follow the links and see what happened. Sure. Rob, um, Rob Wood, The Zone. Any idea when it's supposed to be released? Well, it, it, sometime this summer... Mm-hmm. They hope to submit it to the Band Film Festival this coming fall. Mm-hmm. Well, and I hope you bring it to VIF, Vancouver International Film Festival. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I have appeared there before, and it's got all this clout now because it's got a whole professional um, team of promoters, advertising, and mm-hmm. all that stuff that I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. You don't need to understand it. Yeah. You're the subject. Um, so, yeah, well, once it is close to being released. We'll follow that very closely and we'll be sure to leave the date for our listeners so they can find it and find the book as well. All right, well, do you have anything else that you'd like to say? Any other, any closing statements? Anything that we didn't get to talk about? I I don't think so. No? I think we've covered it. All right, well, thank you so much, Rob. It's It's been a pleasure staying with you. Pleasure to have you. And uh, I'm welcoming all of this interest. Mm -hmm. Helping me to get by up here. Well, I'm sure you'll have more visitors in the yeah. coming in the coming years. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Rob. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us a review, dropped us some stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on, stuff like that. And telling your friends is the best way of helping the show in these early days. And we would really appreciate it if you did. If you want to reach out to the show, you can fire me an email at eastvandaelsewhere at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at eastvandaelsewhere. And you can follow our sound engineer, Cody, at bitcrack on SoundCloud. This is the first episode we produced using all of our own equipment. That being said, if you heard a little bit of fuzz in the background, that's because it started snowing. And that's the sound of the snow hitting the window. Doing recordings on site is going to mean that we're not always going to have control over the environment. We're not doing it inside a proper audio studio, so I hope you forgive me for that. But this was pretty much the only way of getting the episode, was getting out there and seeing them ourselves. I'm going to play you a song by an artist that I always listen to on long road trips. He's called The Tallest Man on Earth. And at five foot six, I doubt he's even the tallest man in Sweden, where he's from, but an amazing artist and one of my favorites for 
listening out in the rain, getting my boots muddy. I think the riff even kind of sounds like the sound of rain falling, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, this is 1904 by The Tallest Man on Earth. Hope you enjoy it.
Cause they shook the earth in 1904